Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, welcome back, my friends. Today, I want to talk about the need to reassess and have ongoing appraisals of a person's cognitive abilities after the original diagnosis and assessment has been made because it we have progressive diseases we're working with here, and the situation does not stay the same. They worsen over time. And the ability of that person to utilize their cognitive skills and memory have declined significantly and impairment is showing in several areas. And for us to understand what is happening to them and to bring it into focus so that we are appropriately addressing whatever symptoms or issues they may be having and Owning what we bring to the table with our understanding makes a huge difference in how their disease is going to present itself to you. And by that, I mean you can't simply think that the way you're working with somebody is going to remain constant or static. It's going to change constantly. And although... Initial and regular assessments for the purpose of diagnosis, monitoring, care planning, and all of that is really sitting in the domain of your specialist, right? Your doctor that you're going to. But everyone who is expected to work with the cognitively impaired person, whether it's recreational activities or or daily tasks that are going on in your house, whatever it is, but especially people that are in memory units for the duration, the people that are working with them need to be allowed to continue to learn and grow while the disease is progressing. And if they don't allow themselves to do that and you don't allow yourself to be wiser and more informed, you're going to struggle. And so today I wanted to talk about why why do we need to continue to do this and how can we continue the ability to judge on an ongoing basis Changes in your person's memory, language, perception, attention, motor planning, and the other higher cognitive processes like judgment and reasoning and um, their emotional impact and, and everything that surrounds all that. And so when you have that information and you have that sensitivity, you automatically make things easier. But if you don't have that, 
you are putting your person into a situation that will end up being frustrated. They'll be defeated. It could be destructive to the relationship they have with you. And, you know, just using an analogy, a baseball coach who attempts to assemble a team without having any idea of whether or not his players can run, catch, or throw would not be successful. So looking at it that way, why do you think if you don't assess where that person is and don't understand where they are in the progression of the disease, you would be successful yourself? It just would not work. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. Sometimes I go into communities and I will watch the staff and the facilitators while they're working with people with memory and cognitive issues. And I make notes so that when I come back to train, I can use real scenarios. I don't call people by name or anything like that. But I try to use real scenarios so that I can really affect change in the way they're working with the people in that community. And one that I made notes of recently was a person who was attempting to have the participants of his activity identify colors of clothing worn by the person sitting next to them. And one lady who was looking at the blue sweater of the person sitting next to her, she tried several times to come up with words, black, beige, brown. And every time she would, he would tell her she was wrong. And she kept trying to go B, 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 B. She was trying to get it. But every time that he pointed out to her that she was wrong, it just became more and more apparent that she had a language deficit. She has aphasia. She couldn't find the word blue. And as she kind of went through the BBBBB, she inadvertently just became so frustrated. And I honestly felt like the facilitator truly was persistently cruel and needlessly exposing this woman to her own failure and frustration, and it did not need to happen. It did not need to happen. So you have to think about things like that. If if you're seeing that the person isn't coming up with the color and they're saying buh, 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 and you can try to help them, blue, blue, that might cue that person to find that color. But constantly telling them that they're saying the wrong thing, that they're not getting the right color, serves no purpose other than to demean that person and point out their deficit. Why in the hell would you do something like that? That's ridiculous. You you just should not do that. I made a couple notes on communities that I've been in, like I said, because I wanted to bring this up today of why it is so important to recognize, I don't want to say our own failures, but our 
inability or unwillingness to try to be resilient and find a positive outcome, okay? So here was one that I wrote down. There was a nurse who was describing uh, one of their residents who needed just a firm hand. And I watched I watched him say, you just have to let him know who's the boss. Don't let him get away with anything. For instance, get so-and-so to dress is a simple matter of just being firm. I made these notes. He said, when I see him in the hall in his pajamas, I tell him, you know, I'll just make up a name, Joe, go into your room and get your clothes on. And Joe will usually say no or later, but I just keep at him. So I take him to his room and may say again, Joe, get dressed, but he's stubborn. You know, he'll usually resist that too. So I open the closet, show him his clothes and tell him again, but he's tough. I then put his clothes on the bed and give him the order again. Usually I have to pick up the clothes and hand them to him directly. Then he puts them on. You see, Joe just needs a firm hand. That made me so angry. I had to write notes on this because it was the dumbest thing I have ever seen. Everybody could have been saved a great deal of agitation if that nurse would have understood that Joe had limited ability to organizational skills and and to be able to execute a task, a simple task, such as dressing, requires the ability in the frontal lobe to be able to put steps together to complete whatever that task is. And he is unable to do that. In the early stages, you lose a certain amount of steps in anything that you're trying to do. And then you lose 50 or 60 more when you get into mid-stage. And you lose another 40 to 50 when you get into late mid-stage. And then you lose all the way down to two or three steps in a task by the time the person is in late stage and in a community. So how is he supposed to be bullied into doing something when his brain, his frontal lobe, isn't allowing him to do that? So all he needed was to assess that person and say, all right, he needs cueing skills. If he would have had step-by-step concrete cues and given one item of clothing at a time and, and said, put your arm in this sleeve, let's pull this over your head. If that nurse would have worked with Joe in that way, Joe would have been successful. He did not need to be bullied into getting dressed. So who is having the cognitive impairment there? (laughs) It's not the person with the memory loss. We have to look at the things that we are doing and the way we are doing them. And if you are not successful, you are the only person that can adjust that. And browbeating that person and shaming that person 
isn't going to make it any easier. It this <laughs> I don't mean to be so fired up today, but this just really makes me crazy that we feel like you know that person maybe is is doing doing this on purpose. They're not getting dressed on purpose. They're not listening to your instructions because they don't want to hear what you say. And that could not be further from the truth. A person with late-stage Alzheimer's or Lewy body or Parkinson's disease or, or vascular dementia, any of them, if they have memory loss, their ability to be able to do this task on their own is non-existent. They need that cueing skill. They need those instructions, simple instructions, to move forward. So I thought today I would do what I do when I go into a community and I, I look at what's going on. I see how the caregivers are interacting with the residents. I make notes and then um, I teach them. Uh, when the class time comes and I have an eight-hour class, I teach them. So today I'm going to do the same thing with you, you folks at home, and try to help you have an ongoing appraisal guide of cognitive abilities and although it doesn't replace or duplicate, you know, a doctor's evaluation, it it doesn't produce a diagnosis or even a, a standard assessment of the person's level, but it does, however, give you a snapshot of certain aspects of that person's cognitive ability. Okay? And it can sort of rewrite for you a process of of being curious and inquiring and and having a more realistic impression of how that person is likely to deal with a situation that challenges their memory and their attention their attention span their language and hopefully be useful in helping caregivers, all of you, account for why a cognitive and memory-impaired person has a failure to achieve certain activities. If we think this through, we can, we can see, we can notice, we can observe that a person is unable to follow a simple written instruction. Uh, like draw this clock or or a verbal instruction, clap your hands, or even read, clap your hands. And even though they can't necessarily read it aloud, um, they may be able to watch you with cueing skills if you were to demonstrate what clapping your hands looks like. They may not hear your words at all. We can, we can say, I'm going to tell you three words, and in a couple of minutes I'm going to ask you to repeat those words. And the fact of the matter is, they don't even remember hearing the words at all. I am kind of guilty of doing that because it's part of an initial assessment early on. But it's really futile to tell that person, just sit right here and and I'm going to talk to you about a few other things 
and and then I'm going to ask you the three three words. And if if you don't get them, I'm going to sit there and be patient until you try to figure them out. If the person can't remember the three words, move on. There's no need to make them feel bad about themselves. There's there's no real reason to be rude or, you know, make them vulnerable. It's just not necessary. So if if you have any action interaction at all that is possibly going to confront the person directly with their disability or their impairment, it has to be that's the best word I can think of. It has to be undertaken. It has to be, I don't want to say facilitated. That's that's just too strong and too clinical of a word. You have to use sensitivity and care. And I've talked about it a lot, using open-ended questions, um, challenging a person's recent memory or asking them to do things um, that they're not likely to succeed at is so hard for them. Saying, what would you like for lunch? That's an open-ended question. A way to assess that is, do they look at you with, you know, like you have two heads? Do they just stare at you? Do they not answer? That's a chance for you to say, would you like this uh, food or would you like that food? Would you like soup or would you like a hamburger today? Um, giving options lets you know if they have the ability to listen to an open-ended question and respond. If they can't figure out from a, a what would you want for lunch, the chances of them understanding that they need to dress themselves is slim and none. Okay. So if you take the time and you try to use some skill and you prepare a way for that person to save face in the event that they're not going to be able to manage the task, if they're not going to be able to understand what you just said, and and like as an example, uh Instead of simply asking a person to do a drawing by saying, can you draw this? You might ask that person to join you in drawing whatever the object is and say, would you like to join me to to draw this clock or whatever it is? And then that person can back out if they feel uncomfortable. They can say, no, I, I don't want to do that. You don't need to... You don't need to pressure that person. You don't need to challenge that person unless you're comfortable that they can handle and you can handle that person's failure if they can't do it in a way that will be comfortable for them. An example of that is uh, one time I asked a, a person who was a former teacher to write her name for me and she didn't even know how to start. And the shock of being confronted with such a fundamental loss for a teacher 
was devastating. And I really wished that I could have taken back that request. I really do. You know, instead, I'm going to write my name. Can you write yours? This is a way to be kind and to be thoughtful while you're assessing their writing skills. So, in the area of memory, an easy way to assess somebody that is kind is to ask, can they recall recent events? Um, do they recall what they had for dinner last night or situations that they were in in the distant past? Uh, where did they grow up? That's a good way to assess a person's long-term memory. Tell me about where you grew up. Tell me about your family life. What schools did you go to? What were some of your first jobs? And is there any discrepancy between that person's account of their life and maybe what is true? Are they forgetting some major events? Or did they get the wrong town? Did they forget some of their siblings? These are all clues to how far progressed the disease is. So when you're asking somebody uh, a question, what's their attitude towards what they can't remember? Are they using confabulations in place of words they can't find? A confabulation is where somebody has told a story that ne may not necessarily apply to them, but they say it as though it was them. So an example of that is my mom one time was telling the caregivers in her memory unit that she used to rock climb. And they were fascinated by that, and they were listening to her and uh, asking her where some of the places was she climbed and all that, and then she got pretty silent. And when she went on to something else and was working on a little art project, I went over and told the caregivers that my mom was kind of living vicariously through me. I spent 15 years rock climbing and very much so enjoyed that. And it really touched my heart that my mom thought it was her. That's what we call a confabulation. So people will come up with stuff like that. It's, it, it fills in the memory gaps with logical, real, true things, but inaccurate information, just like what she said. So, do they do that a lot when they're responding to questions? Do they tell a story that's not true? Are they spontaneous with their answers or not? And to, to try to assess their short-term memory, you could ask them about something that happened yesterday. What did they have for dinner last night? 
did they take a shower this morning? What did they have for breakfast? You can ask simple questions like that to see how well they can respond to those questions. And if there's really strong indication that they are losing not only their short-term memory, but their long-term memory as well. So the significance of this is that the person who has immediate recall and short-term memory, they just need repeated instructions. They need reassurances. They need reorientation of where they are and the scenario that they're in. When they are in the new throes of, of a diagnosis and memory loss, it's hard for them to learn new things. And on the other hand, the person with a, a well-preserved long-term memory can feel really comfortable talking about things from the past. And that is because the back of their brain has had the ability to take information that has come in through their brain stem and formed past the point of a short-term memory and now been concreted as a long-term memory, and it's already there in the brain. So they can talk about memory lane. They can talk about long-ago memories. And that can be a really cool, wonderful thing to do with somebody in any interaction that you're having with them because it gives you an idea of where they are in time. And as they are getting further and further later progressed with the disease, they're unable to pull any of those long-term memories at a certain point. So as we are talking to them, if they can no longer remember where they grew up, the jobs they had at a certain point, when they married their loved one, uh, what their birthday is, who their siblings are, where they went to school, things like that, that tells you as a new assessment that this person is now losing their long-term memory as well. And they are progressing to a point where they're going to need cueing skills for everything they do. So we're going to take a short break, and I'm going to talk to you about language, language problems, and how we reassess language problems as the person is progressing so that you understand why they use word salad and why they use the same comfortable phrases over and over and over again, and sometimes can hide their disease really well by saying the same, same phrases that they've been comfortable with most of their life. We'll be right back. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. 
believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. All right, so today I'm talking about ongoing appraisals of the person's cognitive abilities, and their memory loss. And how do we utilize the skills that I've tried to give you over the years and over over time to look at the changes going on in the brain and try to understand where that person is at a certain place in time. We spend so much time with that person that we could be so close to them that we can't see the changes that are happening. It all looks like it's just rolling together. It's just, you know, just kind of a mess. But it's really not. So I want to give you some questions to ask so that you at home can understand what even a doctor would be looking for. You can make some notes. You can write this information down, and then the next time you go to the doctor so that they can assess where the person is, you're actually giving them some really good information that they can utilize because if they only spend 15 or 20 minutes with that person, they're not going to see what you see on a daily basis. So I want to talk about expressive language, okay? What kind of questions would you ask? Does that person talk around a word without being able to get to the point? Are they, you're trying to ask them something and they're coming up with sometimes non-existent words um, or near-miss words to express their thoughts? Is there a significant discrepancy between that person's output when they're speaking spontaneously to you? When they're trying to reply to a question, do they just shout out something that's totally different. I'll give you an example of that. I was assessing a person recently, and as I was talking to her, out of the blue, when she couldn't answer the question I was trying to ask her, she said, sometimes I feel lost in my own house. Just a spontaneous thought she just kind of threw out there. And didn't even remember later that she had said it. And oftentimes, when they 
are just trying to come up with a thought, they're usually more fluid and um, talkative, more expansive with what they're trying to say. So we end up with something called word salad, where they're just throwing over there. They will say things like that that make absolutely no sense and could be very labored in what they're trying to tell you. They, the words that they kind of put together are sort of sparse. They're, they're just trying to figure out a thought and then they, they could mimic a nursery rhyme or, or counting numbers or something that is easy, easier to get out than, you know, conversational speech. Sometimes they're just emotionally uttering things and words when their formal speech is defective. So again, why is that significant? Well, we as caregivers have to make more effort to listen to the message behind the words, pay attention to the nonverbal communication of that person, and pay really strong attention to the the context of where the message is being delivered. I tell you constantly to look at the emotion of the person rather than sometimes what they're saying. Don't don't try to deal with the whole of the of the symptom that is happening. Look at the emotional way that they are delivering it. Do they seem upset? Do they seem tearful? Are they anxious or are they happy? That will help you to sort of assess how they are able to deliver their thought to you. And if you can tell a doctor, well, she seems really happy, but her words just aren't coming but it helps me to to say, oh, you just seem like you're overjoyed about something. Are you feeling good? And then they might say, yes, they are, and give you a hug or something and move on to the next thing. So then we understand that the part of the brain that is helping to facilitate the emotion is impaired to a certain degree. The language being able to identify an object and to say what that object is, is lost. So they come with the emotional impact of what they're trying to say. And it's so much easier to try to address the emotion of the person than the lost words that they're trying to communicate. We as caregivers spend way too much time trying to figure out what someone is saying and their garbled language just leaves both of us totally confused. And then we try to correct that person who is using the wrong words. And it just doesn't, everything falls apart. So that's what I would call expressive language, emotional language. There's something called receptive language. 
And the questions you would ask with receptive language would be, well, like even if that person uh, has speech that's totally impaired, you still have to figure out whether or not they understand you, right? So can they point at a specific object when you ask them, is that a Kleenex box? Can you point at the Kleenex box? Can they do that? Can they respond to you with a simple yes or no question? Can they follow simple orders to do things such as picking up an object or clapping their hands? Can they uh, say whether or not they want a hamburger or that soup for lunch? Those receptives, receptors in the brain help us to understand if they're even comprehending the words we are saying. So if they don't point at that Kleenex box when you ask them, if they don't give you a yes or no answer, then those receptors aren't working. And now we may have to literally do everything for that person. They may be at a place where we have to pull out their clothes and just uh, compassionately and kindly help them to get dressed without ever even cueing them. When they have lost that ability to answer yes or no questions and those receptors in the receptive language isn't working, it's become so much more difficult. And you're going to have to minimize that person's dependence on verbal communication and use nonverbal cues and gestures to help them be successful. Because they may or may not understand what you're saying any longer. This is an important thing for an ongoing appraisal to say this person has reached a point where they do not understand verbal conversation. They cannot understand verbal communication at all. And now I have to use visual cues to work with them. I have to show them this is their soup. Here's your spoon. This is your shirt. We're going to put it on. Those kinds of things. That's a game changer. When they've reached that point, it's a complete game changer. And also, you know, written communication. I talked about that before. Can they read what I've written on a piece of paper? Can they can they read um, write a sentence. Can they read what is your name and answer that? Can they follow those simple instructions? And even if they're able to read it, they might not understand the meaning of what they're reading. And we're not going to be able to utilize uh, notes anymore. We may not be able to utilize, you know, labeling cabinets that this is where spoons are and this is where plates are and and this is where bowls are and things like that. So those things are instructional and they can help you to understand why that person may not 
read a note that you've left them or be able to look at a board that you've been writing things on or see a calendar and read the date. All things that can help you to assess their progression of their disease. So how about attention span? That's a big deal. Um, Is their attention easily aroused? Can you keep them engaged? Can they concentrate or do they get up and walk out of the room? Can they do a simple task? Such as saying what the months of the year are. Um, how many, how far can they count? Can they count? Um, can they add? Can they, can they tell you what season it is? Um, or do they get up and walk away? Do they lose their attention span really quickly? If they are, then they're going to have difficulty remaining with any task. They are going to wander away from any topic of discussion. They're they're not going to be able to remember what you just said. They're going to need frequent reminders of the goal of the activity. And you might have to redirect them constantly back to the task, back to the task, back to the task. And you'll have to keep your environment free of distractions. It's going to be essential or this person isn't going to be successful, they're not going to be able to perform the task. They're not going to be able to do what you asked them to. So this is a way that you can assess their attention. Um, How about abstract thoughts? Do they understand the meaning of something that you just said? Can they understand instructions of something that's not immediately present? Um, Do they understand hypothetical situations? We're going to go to the doctor today at 2 o'clock. They get up and grab their coat and head for the door. They don't understand you mean a little bit later. Um, Again, this is where date, time, months are gone now. They... They don't know what what today's date is. They don't know who the president is. They don't know what time it is. Their body is telling them it's time to eat, but they don't recognize that it's 11 o'clock in the morning or 11.30 in the morning, and that's when they usually eat. It's more muscle memory than abstract thought. It's If you said something sort of like Rome wasn't built in a day, they would look at you like you had two heads. What does that mean? They don't understand those abstract thoughts. Um, you could ask somebody to explain the similarity between two different objects, such as a turnip and a cabbage. They're both vegetables. Or a plane or a bicycle, both being means of transportation. Can they tell you what those mean? Can they say those are both ways to get somewhere or those are vegetables that we can eat? Do they understand that? The problem with this and the significance of it is the person with this kind of impairment in the right side of the brain, the parietal lobe, 
will struggle with grasping explanations or even conceiving future events or consequences of their actions. If you touch that fire, you're going to burn yourself. Okay? So when they no longer understand all this, this is significant to the next chapter in the book. When they when they don't understand what is happening, they don't understand that they're going somewhere later, not right now. This is where anxiety grows. This is where they become uh, upset, distant, uh, fearful, because you're mentioning something that you're going to do in a little while, and they don't understand that you don't mean right now. And then you're angry with them because they got up and walked towards the door. But again, this can tell you where they're at in the process. Is there is there abstract thought working or not? This one is one of the easiest to determine and to try to understand a little bit better. One of the biggest problems people have is judgment, right? Um, do they have any social judgment anymore? Do they know that they can't tell somebody they're fat? Uh, they can't say somebody's stupid. It's inappropriate to use certain language in, in certain situations. Can they solve simple problems like managing their checkbook? Uh, can they am- anticipate the consequences of their actions if they take something off the shelf of a store and put it in their pocket? Um a way that you could assess that would be like, what would you do if there was a fire in your house? And see what they say. Are they able to, are they able to figure that out? Can they, can they put together the judgment and reasoning that if the house is on fire, you need to get, get your, your family out and your dogs and cats and whatever out. And if you have time, grab your paperwork that you need, like insurance paper or mortgage papers or something like that, and then get out of the house, can they answer things like that? Or would they say maybe they would grab a fire extinguisher and put the fire out? Can they do that? And why this is important is because when they have problems in this area, they oftentimes get obstinate and angry and embarrassed because they can't complete what they're trying to do and they don't want your help. <laughs> um, they might need you to sit next to them while they're writing out checks or filling out bills online. Um, how do they resolve simple problems or mix-ups or avoid something catastrophic happening like um, giving too much money to a charity or something like that? If you're seeing these kinds of things, you will understand that judgment and reasoning in other areas of their life, like taking a shower at least every third day or dressing themselves appropriately for weather outside, is no longer working. And you have to provide cueing skills to help them with that.
All right. So how about just insight? Do they have insight any further? Are they able to have an intellectual conversation with you? Have they lost their intimacy? Wanting to hug you or being concerned about your needs, the things that matter to you. Are they, are they just distant? When they lose that ability to have intellectual conversations with you or to be intimate with you, hugging, kissing, caring about how your day went, things like that, your relationship changes. And the only way you're going to be able to do that and assess that change is to open a non-threatening conversation about the general changes that you're seeing compared to the way they were over the course of their lifetime. And try as hard as you can not to be uh, angry or rude about it because that person that lacks insight truly has an unrealistic assessment of their own abilities and they're going to need more supervision and more support when they are confronted with difficulties in the intimacy area. And if they're, if they're willing and they're able, I would enlist a social worker or a counselor to help with that as much as you can, as early on as you can. Another area is um, perception of their motor skills and their coordination. We, we need to assess this because it's a safety issue. Can they judge space and direction? Do they know where their body is in relationship to like objects, uh, like stairs? Do they know that they have to step down on every stair? I see this a lot where people with memory loss will go downstairs and skip every other stair. That's a fall waiting to happen. Or going up and skipping every other stair. Um, their inability to see concrete stairs outside, like on your front porch or something like that, or on your back porch, where you may need to incorporate color contrast to help them recognize where the edge of the step is. This is why people have falls. Um, do they know their left and their right? Do they know where their arm is? Their leg is? Do they lose their way in the house? Um, this is really important because if that person lose the loses the ability to walk around their house and walk around their space, they could walk outside and get lost. They could uh, feel like they're lost in their own house and dis display fearfulness or wanting to just stay in their room all the time or clinging to you. So 
those are important, important things because the adjustments that would need to be made when you notice this person progressing in this area, you're going to have to take some safety measures to put like uh, benches in showers. Uh, you're going to have to maybe take off the shower curtain if they're grabbing onto the shower curtain, if they lose their balance and they fall and pull the whole thing down and hurt themselves and fall over the tub. Um, the, the, the visuospatial perception and the motor coordination that is lost becomes the biggest single reason people end up moving into a care community and a, mem- a member unit. It's just no longer safe for them to be in their own home because they're not able to assess uh, any part of their body and step going up and down steps, uh, sitting down on chairs, getting up and getting dizzy, running into walls, losing their balance, falling a lot are huge safety issues and can help your doctor or any other assessor to help you embrace and understand sometimes that we are unable to continue with the scope of care needed for that person. And that's a big painful, humongous decision that people have to make. And it's just, it's it's the single worst thing I think, especially spouses ever have to make. So being able to assess that person on a continual basis of how they're able to, to manage themselves in their own home, recognize their own face in the mirror, recognize your face, uh, recognize their own body parts is a big, big deal. I hope that this has helped you somehow today to be able to understand you can, on your own, in your own home, look at these areas I've talked about and make some journal notes. Do it every three to six months so that you can look back and say, oh, they could do this six months ago, but they can't do it now. And that will help you to adjust the strategies and techniques that you use to help them be successful and to also recognize for yourself if they have reached a place where you are unable to care for them. So if I were all of you, I would seriously, from the day that you get a diagnosis, make a journal and put notes in about once every three to six months and kind of use the topics that I use today, language, motor skills, uh, cognitive perception, uh, just their ability to Understand, understand space and time, abstract thought, and just make some 
make some topics and then note the date and the time that you made this assessment and then go back and look at it six months later when you make a new assessment and it will help you to see where that person is in time and with their cognitive loss and their memory impairment. If you can stay ahead of the game, you'll be so much better off. I hope this wasn't too heavy of a conversation today, but like I said, when I go into communities and I'm working there, I make assessments of the the way the caregivers are facilitating an activity, and it gave me a thought today that maybe just helping you understand as well uh, how to assess a person as the disease progresses and help you to be that much better and stronger of a caregiver. All right. With that, I will see you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.